right? So long story short here, if you can get it around that coupling, you're gonna get a nicer transition. In our built environment here and, and where you work, where we're probably going to stretch these lines up the outside, we may be inhibiting other means of in egress and ingress in those stairwells if we try to wrap around them. by Job Talks podcast members and guests are not representative of any department, organization, or city. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Job Talks. Uh, we're here tonight in the studio talking with Dave Quick out of Manchester, New Hampshire. Oh, I said that weird, New Hampshire. Uh, what's up, Dave? How you doing? Weird. Good, fellas. How are you? Thanks for having me on tonight. I'm looking forward to, to nerding out who wants to mention talk. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Thanks, we're, thanks, we're, for, thanks for coming on, man. We really appreciate you. We've actually been looking for someone to do an engine episode for a really long time. And uh, we were actually talking about it right before um, before you hopped on. And uh, we were talking about how like I was I was uh, kind of following you and then Barry through like channels of knowing people in Manchester was kind of following you. And we simultaneously were trying to reach out to you to see about doing this. And um, then it kind of worked out. And then we we had that little conversation real quick uh, a couple of months ago. And, and we're like, yeah, definitely. We need to get this guy on. So, yeah. um, yeah, we appreciate you coming on, man. Really excited to hear what you have to say and, and, uh, get some, get some more knowledge and passion for the job out there, you know? Sounds good. Thanks again for having me. It's great. Um, so, uh, I guess started off, start us off with, uh, your, your background in the fire service. So were you, are you first generation, you have family in the fire service? How'd you get into it? Yeah. So, uh, I'm a fifth generation firefighter. Uh, as we were discussing awesome. uh, before the show, here in the background, I've got basically my only piece of fire memorabilia here in my house uh, on display. It's a speaking trumpet from my great-great-grandfather, who is the chief of the Kingston, New York Fire Department. And they gave it to him when he retired, and it's from 1857. So um, I guess I've kind of wow. just grown up around it. Uh, he was the only career firefighter. Uh, my dad joined the volleys when I was about four months old, so he's still doing it now. He's still responding to calls at 76 years old and a fire awesome. commissioner and all those other kinds of things. So I guess my, uh, I guess as they always say, right, kind of in the blood and kind of grew up around it and uh, thought I might want to be a chef. I looked at the Culinary Institute in Johnson and Wales uh, my senior year, thought I was going to do that. My mom was a, a high school teacher and she taught culinary arts. So I just assumed I was going to kind of go down that road and maybe continue to volley. And somewhere around like March of my senior year, I told my parents, I don't think I want to do this. I think I want to, uh, I think I want to go be a fireman. So, yeah. uh, that was kind of it. And, um, I How'd lived they take it? about, they were good. They're really good about it. My dad told me that, um, the only thing I had to do was make money and make sure I did it legally. So they were always <laughs> real good about supporting <laughs> Whatever it was that I wanted to do, uh, I guess it helps too. I'm an only child, so they didn't have other kids to necessarily have to worry about with college yeah. and whatnot. But I yeah, think right. uh, like most parents, right, they just cared about wanting me to do what was going to make me happy and, and find something that I was passionate about. And I was fortunate yeah. that they uh, that they 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 helped uh, guide me and to sort of push me and, and let me do what I wanted to. They were very yeah. supportive. That's so great, awesome. man. That's awesome. Um, so yeah. when did you, uh, I have two questions. First is, uh, did you pick up any of your mom's culinary skills and bring them to the firehouse? And, uh, the second is when did you actually, uh, when did you actually join the fire service? How old were you and how long ago was it? 
Oh God. So yeah, I guess I brought a little bit. Um, she was, it was back in the nineties, man, when she, when everything was all about like low fat, low cholesterol. So I knew about the healthy cooking, but not necessarily the, the firehouse cooking. So, um, I brought a little bit. I certainly had a lot to learn. The guys in the firehouse were, uh, were fantastic about it. I got on in Manchester when I was 25, but being an only child and, and, uh, living at home and stuff, I was still pretty young for, for, uh, being that age. And I really grew up a lot, I would say, in the three or four years. I had some really good mentors. Uh, my lieutenant then, Greg Schwinnard, who ended up being my captain later on, he taught me a lot about life and, you know, was kind of an officer, kind of a dad. Uh, the guys taught me about cooking. They toughened up my skin and, and things like that. So I was fortunate. So, yeah, I brought a little bit to it. But um, did, you, so I, did you, I know you're originally from New York. How did how did the connection come between between Manchester and New York? Did you like know that know that they were hiring and just like made the the straight shot jump or how did, how did that end up coming to be? Yeah, I always like to say when you meet a guy that lives a long way from home, how do you think he got there? A girl. So I was dating <laughs> a girl in college that was from uh, Manchester. So I tested all over the Northeast. I tested in you know FDNY. I tested in Boston. Um, I was a permanent reserve out in Northampton, Mass, for a little while. I tested in Danbury, Connecticut. I didn't care. I just wanted to be on the job. Yeah. And where I grew up in New York, there were only a couple of career departments around there. City Kingston, City Poughkeepsie, City Newburgh. And they were only 60-man departments. So um, there wasn't a lot of turnover, and it was real hard to, to get on on those jobs. So I was willing yeah. to go someplace. And I always knew I wanted to work in somewhat of an urban environment. This was always kind of drawn to that. So yeah uh, yeah that's how i got here well we love it and of course people then follow up with well are you still with the girl the answer is no uh but i did meet my wife up here and we love it she's also from upstate new york outside of albany and uh, yeah, we cool. talk about it all the time we wouldn't we wouldn't go back we like we like new england it's nice here yeah uh, i'm originally from florida you can probably guess how i ended up here and uh <laughs> and uh, same, same thing i i uh i i love it up here i wouldn't i wouldn't go back um, it's nice. The beach is nice to visit for a while, but, uh, but I really like, I really like New England. It's a nice area. So totally understand yeah, that, man. For sure. So to go back to your second part of your question, um, I joined the fire service in 1994. I was 16 years old. Um, they had junior firefighters in New York. You were allowed to join the department and you could do everything other than drive the rig and you couldn't be interior. So, you know, I'd show up. And I'd go on calls, respond, do all outside operations, pack hose, go to drills, go to training. So by the time I graduated high school, I already had, you know, my fire, what would be equivalent of fire one, some other classes uh, there, which was good. So, um, yeah, so I was fortunate too. So from there, uh, Rockland Community College had an associate's program in fire uh, fire science. And um, I started there in 1996. And that's where my love of the engine started because I had a college professor by the name of Andy Fredericks. Ah. And uh, Andy taught my building construction classes. He had nothing to do with pumps or engines or whatever else. And, of course, looking back on it at 18 years old, all I cared about was wanting to ride the back step of the fire engine and, and hear the siren uh, siren go. I wish I knew then, you know, what I know now about Andy. But um, after I left Rockland Community College in 98, uh, you know, he's writing articles for fire engineering. You start looking at those periodicals. And that probably, just knowing him personally and knowing his love for the engine, is probably what really started um, my my progression towards where I've gotten to today. So, did you awesome. when you first uh, when you got onto Manchester, were you assigned an engine? Is that your was that your like initial assignment? 
Yeah, so uh, I got assigned to a double company. So engine and truck six on the west side. And when I got hired, we ran three on the engine. It was an officer plus two and two firefighters on the truck, no officer. And we would rotate between the different positions. So um, as much as I loved the engine for the first 15 years of my career, I did spend, you know, uh, rotations on the ladder company. Uh, I probably spent more time when I could on the engine. We also... Uh, through some staffing crunches, went to this thing called shared staffing. So we'd have an engine and a ladder in the firehouse and fire alarm would say, take the engine or the ladder. And um, the, we had four guys. So either four were on the engine or four were on the ladder. And I would say that based on our responses, I went to more fires on the engine um, in the city than I did on the truck. But yeah. Interesting. That's awesome. Yeah, I think, doesn't, I think Cali does that too, right? Like a lot of places out in Cali, they do the, the, where you, you do, a, a certain amount of shifts on the engine and then you move over and you swap essentially um, yeah. like their engines are super, super busy out there. So I think they do that to like share the load a little bit. Yeah, probably. I think a lot of fire departments do. So that way guys don't get burnt out. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's kind of cool because like we, we've mentioned it a bunch of times in different episodes, but like in bigger departments, you can, you can end up on a truck or a pump or whatever the, the, the piece is. And that's all you do for your entire career. So I think it's cool being on a bigger department that still shares that, like you get to do a little bit of both is pretty, pretty good. And I think yeah. probably yeah, no. definitely like helps. I think it breeds a more versatile firefighter, especially as you, as you grow up in rank, you know, and become a lieutenant or a captain and you understand like the overall fire ground operations and like, Hey, us as the engine company, we're going to be doing this in coordination with the truck company and you can kind of have an, an understanding and expectation of what they're doing kind of simultaneously to you and kind of timing and working, um, working together to achieve things. I just think, yeah, like the, the more um, situational awareness you have of what other companies are doing around you at the same time, especially as you go up and become like an engine company officer, truck company officer, rescue officer, squad, whatever um, makes you more versatile. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I certainly learned a lot about um, different aspects of the fire ground on the on the truck. So you said you were on on the uh, on the the dual company for fifteen years. Yeah. So when did you when did you come off of it? Uh, when I got promoted. So uh, I spent I got assigned to engine and truck six in two thousand and four, and I stayed there until December of two thousand and eighteen. I got promoted, and um, I bounced for nine months. And spent a good chunk of time, like three months down in the South End at Engine Company 3, which was really good for me. We call it the busiest of the slow firehouses. We have our yeah. bottom four, and it's the busiest yeah. of the slow. It's all in the commercial district. So it's down, uh, you know, off Exit 2, or no, Exit 1, South Willow Street, um, all in New Hampshire, that whole South End. And uh, in my opinion, the commercial fire ground is just something that we as firefighters don't experience a lot and don't have necessarily the best grasp on. So I'm glad there's guys like Aaron Heller on, you know, from on scene training that are out there running those types of programs because I think it's important. Um, yeah. You know, even for me, I only worked uh, probably a handful, maybe a half dozen of the commercial fires and whatnot. But so there was industrial down there. You had part of the um, airfield that was in, in that district. And it wasn't yeah. anything, you know, that I was used to. So it was a good challenge for those couple months to be out of my comfort zone and, and go scope that out. And after that, I went back to engine and truck six. Uh, we put truck six in service full time as, with an officer. So um, my very first lieutenant that I talked about earlier, Greg Schwinnard, was the captain there, and he asked me to come back, which I thought was very kind of him. 
And um, I spent another 18 months there and uh, I was there with another lieutenant and we would bounce back and forth. So I'd spend a month on the engine, a month on the truck and and go back and forth. And uh, about two years ago, Captain DeRusso got assigned to Engine Company 11 and he had a retirement and asked if I'd come down there. So I've been there there since. So the majority of my time has been in uh, either the inner city or just the outskirts on the west side, which is very similar. And 11's at uh, headquarters, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a triple house, right? You guys run the uh, engine, a truck, and the rescue out of there? Rescue, yeah. You got it. Yep. Yeah. I think think there's something about those. So our headquarters does the same. And uh, there's something about those, like, triple houses, man, like, especially when it comes to, like, dinner time and you're sitting up there, you know, hanging out with, you know, 15 people or whatever it is and, and just having like a good time. Like it's, it's, it's a, a pretty yeah. cool experience. It's a good, it's a good, good dynamic for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, yep. So what, what about your time? Uh, you said you fell in love with, with the engine, like kind of in the nineties, but what like reinforced that when you finally got hired and, and uh, we're working and you got to experience both, like what, what kept the passion for the engine going versus, you know, like in truck work or whatever the case is. Man, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know that I ever thought of it. I'm sure I still had, you know, um, that influence from Andy, especially after 9-11 and, and you know, Andy's ambassadors and, and all those things. I guess I always wanted to be where the action was. You know, I wanted to stretch lines. I wanted to put water on the fire. It's what I enjoy doing. And um, as trade publications became, uh, I would say a little bit more frequent, like Fire Rescue Magazine was coming out with Firehouse and Fire Engineering, Fire Apparatus, you had those. And then, you know, some online platforms, there just happened to be some more information. So uh, I guess I just have more of a technical brain. Most people would tell you that I'm more cognitive than I am uh, hands-on. And yeah. so there was just something there. I like to research stuff and it just kind of snowballed. So um Fortunately, uh, I had a captain that was at Engine 6 that let us try different things. He was nice enough to not say no. And I had a company officer that um, didn't say no either. So we went out, we tried things. Is this going to work in the city? Is it not? It just kind of kept things going. And um, I don't know, just always wanted to continue to try to do what we could to be better. And uh, that was it. So do you guys have like a, a, a standard layout? like department wide. So like as far as, as far as Cambridge goes as an example, and I'll, I'm curious if you guys are similar, like each, each company has a captain speaking, speaking as it regards the engine companies, like they can have a little bit of variation in their like deployment package, but like, as far as what you're running and how you're running it, it has to be kind of within the same realm. Um, but as far yeah. as like how you're deploying lines, like whether, what type of um, setup you want, you can have a little bit of variation um, but do you guys have pretty much a, a standard um, package across the board or do you have a little bit of creativity in how you guys do things? Uh, we have a lot of creativity in how we do things. Um, pretty much the captain of the house has the opportunity to set up their fire engine the way that they want to. So I guess you're right. There's blessings and curses that come along with that. Um, yeah. You know, obviously working with captain DeRusso, he's uh, super supportive and into this as well. So uh, I think he's done a phenomenal job in setting up our back step for our particular district and all the different things that we're going to run into, which is really good. I would yeah. say the downside of all that creativity, though, is when you show up second or third due and now you're stretching off of someone else's rig, you may not know what the diameter is. You may not know what um, what the length of that hose is. So you're really relying on walking up to that engine chauffeur 
and saying, hey, man, like we got to pull a backup line. You know, how long was the first line? Was it 200 feet? Was it 300 feet? What diameter was it? And then, okay, what do you got for me on the back step here coming off the cross layer, whatever the case may be? I would say, though, um, I, if I had to venture a guess, we're moving more towards standardization. We just did a big nozzle and appliance study, and we've narrowed down our target flows in our small, medium uh, attack package as well as our master streams. And yeah. um, uh, we are starting to standardize to low hose beds with L-shaped water tanks, which we didn't have before. So I think as those start to come through and with the administration that we have, we're going to start to do exactly what you said. Lots of close standardization with a few alternatives for things within your own district, which I think there should be some allowance for. Yeah. And yeah. that's pretty much like what it comes down. So like we have our our two um, or three pre-connects rather. We have the uh, 115, 200 inch and three quarter. I don't know. Like I know you got to meet with uh, with Joey and Matt, so I don't know how much orientation uh you got to uh one of one of our trucks but um the two inch and three quarter uh 150 and 200 and then the 200 of uh two and a half and then off the back we have the horseshoe on uh, supply line so there's a little bit of variation in like hey like how do you want to build your deployment package but as far as like how much hose is available where it's located on the truck and then like it's it's pretty much like you should be able to go to engine eight or engine six and like have a reasonable assumption that what you're pulling, this is what you got. Like granted, like the deployment package, like I said, might be a little bit different, but everyone should be able to, you know, so, but I also think that to your point, like districts are different and like building something that's optimal, like, you know, building something that's completely optimized to headquarters that performs really well in that district should be, I think, some credence should be given there versus someone that has a completely different operational environment. Like some of our more, I wouldn't say like rural companies, but we have like suburban ish areas versus Mm -hmm. like, if you go from all the way from West Cambridge and we'll we'll feel free to jump in like West Cambridge and East Cambridge are a completely different animal. Like if you, if you come from West Cambridge on like the, like the Arlington line, you have a lot of like old school residential homes, some, some two and a half story, but like, much more larger properties, probably longer lays because they're more private residences. And then you go to mm-hmm. certain parts of East Cambridge, you have 35, 40 story biotechnical district wow. to two and a half, two and a half story wood frames that are right on top of each other. Yeah, um, so I think super, super, building super optimization. Yeah. And then we have like, like another note on that, like uh, West and North Cambridge, we have a decent amount of like larger old uh, masonry construction, non-sprinkler buildings. And in mm-hmm. East Cambridge, you either have like the residential stuff or all the all the bigger buildings are are sprinklered. You know, they're newer or they've been yeah. updated and they're sprinklered. So, so yeah, I I completely agree. I think like having enough standardization that you could move between the companies makes sense, but also having like having the ability to like tailor what your loadout is um, to your district is is important too. Because as as you very well known it's not one size fits all when it comes to 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 hose to deployment packages to any of that stuff you know yeah i think too um to expand on that one of the places where the fire service i think is coming up short is we don't build a second line to mimic that first one so we say okay this district requires this um i'll say oddball stretch or load or whatever the case may be 
but we only have enough for that first line. And I don't think that most fire departments look at it from where do I get my backup line from and or the second line, right? Because they're two different things. Right. And and most of the time you're going to need an even longer amount of hose, right? The number one engine company mistake is stretching short. So um, if that's going to be used as a backup line, you, need, you know that you need that to be longer. And then if you've got to go to the floor above or something like that, we know it needs to be longer. So I think fire department should focus on that as well. Okay, I got this this specialized one, but where's that next one come from that can can work in tandem with it? All right. Yeah, that's a good. Point. So so your so your your passion obviously is engine company operations. So um, you want to get into like some of your thoughts on like engine company operations, whether it's like starting off with like being a first new engine company, like what's important or um, what you think is important to, to know and pass along to people that are, that are engine guys doing engine work. Sure. Um, I will start off always by saying I'm really not that smart. Um, I take information that I hear from a lot of different places and kind of package it together to meet what works for me, my crew and my city. So um, the majority of the stuff is just sort of packaged from other places. So I want to make sure that the folks that did put that information out there get credit for it too. So I'm a big fan of um, what Brian Brush started with the Exponential Engine Company and uh, having three distinct attack packages for a certain amount of fire. Um, you hear Aaron Field and John, Jay Bonifield talk all the time about the rules of three. And as you start to delve into that, and you look at um, where that comes from and you look at the human brain, um, the human brain is trying to create patterns, it's trying to scan back onto things and situations that you've seen and been successful at before and quickly make that decision. In most cases, it's not like either or in the fire service. It's I see this, I respond to it, and I act what it is. So I think from an engine company perspective, it's having you know three attack packages that meet your um, occupancies and your buildings and um, your staffing uh, to try to build something out that, you know, is in Boston or New York or um, even a small rural department next door to you isn't necessarily the best. So you need to figure out what works for you. And I try to tell people that all the time. So I think, you know, that that small diameter needs to be in that 150, 160 target flow range. You know, maybe in certain instances, um, New York, we stayed in a, a 15, 16, so 185 in Manchester. And that's really for tactical redundancy. And the fact, as you alluded to earlier, maybe it was in the beginning of the show, our front hallways and our buildings are so small and trying to get multiple hand lines up some of these occupancies is hard. So we want to have the volume of water um, up there. And if we need to, you know, smack it with that 185 or even increase the the tip pressure a little bit to get a little bit more water, that's going to be our primary attack line. So I think that first initial 150 to 160, a couple rooms of fire, when your folks get off, they see those bedrooms off, there's no debating which one am I going to take. And then I would say that next one needs to be about 100 gallons per minute more, right? There needs to be a big enough definite uh, distinction between your small diameter and then your medium diameter attack package. So whether that's through a two inch hose, an oversized two inch hose, like a two and a quarter or a two and a half, um, flowing in that 260, 265 range. Uh, when I'm out demoing with folks and talking about engine company stuff, I try to uh, tell them all the time, I'm not convinced that in the commercial fire ground that you need 265 gallons per minute. However, I do believe that you need the column of water or the slug of water to get it where you want it to go to. So in order to do that, we need to jump up, right? So, um, and then I think the last part from the engine company perspective is having that sort of master stream or large diameter attack package. 
And I think that should be in the 500 gallon per minute range, uh, five to 600 gallons. So whether that is off of the you know rapid attack monitor, portable monitor, blitz fire, whatever it is, or your deck gun. I think, you know, a lot of places, if you need more than that, then put the aerial pipe into operation. But uh, yeah, I think three distinct attack packages. If you notice, like uh, Brian Brush talks about having things double. So his is 150, 300, 600. I think in the 160, 265, 500, uh, my experience has been that that works well. So I would start there and get my folks out identifying volumes of fire and then which line they should be pulling from. That's a... That that sounds like that sounds some of it sounds like complicated, but I th- that's like makes so much sense to me. Like, um, I think I don't think we talked used the words today, but that's the recognition prime decision making, right? So that's sure. like that's exactly what you said is that you get used to saying, okay, if I see this, I'm going to start here, and maybe maybe you're wrong and you have to switch it up, but you have the capability to do so. But having that just like in your rolodex of like. I know every time I pull up and this is what I see, like this is this is what yeah. I'm doing with it is is a pretty a pretty um a pretty smart way to go about engine company ops. And I have to throw out there that I I have uh, very little experience with engine company operations. So okay, uh, if I sound like I don't know what I'm talking about, it's probably because I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> he he left he left me early for the squad. I followed later. Oh man, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. yeah. It's actually a funny story of which I've told before and will tell again of how I was abandoned <laughs> after serving my country. Uh, um, so uh, Will was, we were both assigned to engine three. We were both like he, Will came from Wayland. I it was like my first like real, real job, you know, as you know, in the fire service. And uh, we just had like such a good crew. And I deployed for a year. I came back and our chief, uh, chief of operations at the time was like, Hey, we have a couple openings where do you want to go? Like, so I was like, instantly I was like, obviously chief put me back in the trenches with the men, like where there's no alternative here. And literally I go back like stoked, like back with the boys within, I shit you not within three months, will transfer to the squad. My Lieutenant went to training and then my senior man made acting. I like look around and I'm like, left the ferry all alone. (laughs) Yeah. All alone, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, going back to what you said uh, with recognition, prime decision making, um, sources of power, the book Sources of Power, they follow fire commanders and um, police people around, uh, police officers, and um, and looked at the way that they made decisions. And you're exactly right. That's that's totally uh, what we're trying to create here. Yeah, yeah, and and like like you said, like your brain recognizes patterns and it scans scans the rolodex. Like, hey, I've seen this before, or I've trained on this before, and we talk about it a lot on this show yeah. in general. Is is you know Manchester? I think you guys get a decent amount of fire load, you know, um, relative, relatively yeah. speaking. But everywhere fires aren't what they used to be, and so a lot of places have to manufacture their experience through training. And so mm-hmm. if you can't get it on the street in real life, if you don't train on it and talk about it and have plans to do it, then when the time comes, you're going to be, you know, the you know the people say there's the cliche sayings like you always like fall to the level of your training. You don't rise to the occasion, but that's really true. Like if you don't, if you haven't practiced it, you can't expect that you're just going to be able to like make the decision and then execute and like be successful at it, you know? hundred percent. Yeah. And I, um, I think from there, you know, looking at the stretch then, right. So if I kind of identified what volume of fire I have, 
I've identified which hand line is appropriate for that. Now I got to kind of figure out where am I going to get that hose from. And um, on my rig, we have three ways to get hose. It's going to either be the cross lay, it's going to be off the back step, or it's going to be from the standpipe. And so now we're going to look at where we had to place the apparatus. So if we stop short, and we're, my driver's going to angle the apparatus, this is from Stretching for Success from Steve Robertson, angle that rig. Um, so that way the cross lays are more at a 45 towards the building versus being, uh, you know, right in line with the road where it's now um, perpendicular. And when I come off to the side, I've got cars and obstructions, right? So I'm going to stop short. That's going to be my best stretch. Where if I pull beyond the building, then I'm going to probably come off the back. If it's above the second or third floor, I'm probably going to come off the standpipe. So now they're able to determine where am I going to get the hose from. And then um, the next part is, is, okay, I've got the hose. I've gotten it to where, you know, how much hose do I need? So then you got to break that down. You break that down into three steps, right? Rig to door, rig, uh, door to the safe area. And then how much do I need for the compartment of fire? So everything that we do, we break down into either three options or three roles, and it's in a sequence, right? So now we've deployed it. Um, we, uh, we know how much hose we need, and now we've got it all flaked out, and I need three months of every hose stretch. I want to make sure that I clear the bed. I need to have at least 50 feet of hose with me, so the nozzle and the coupling. I need to make sure that my attack, the part that's going forward, is over top of the supply, the hose that is, you know, back towards the rig. So that way I'm not getting that friction and keeping the hose line pulled down. And then at that point, right, we look at what Aaron Field talks about in moving the hand line. There's three options. I either move the hose line up to whatever's burning and I put it out. That's kind of what we hope is going to be the case, so to speak. Um, we just walk there and it goes out. The second part is going to probably be like a pin and hit. So I'm going to throw some water downstream. And then I'm going to shut the line down. I'm going to move forward, continue to do the same thing. Or um, if I'm getting instant rebound and I'm not getting any knockback downstream, I'm going to have to flow and move. Once I get the fire knocked down, I'm in the room. There's three things I have to do. I need the hydraulic vent. I need the search. And I need to open up. And that's from Cody Trust Trail and uh, Brothers in Battle, their engine company class. So um, when you look at the engine, as my junior man likes to say, the job's not that hard. And when he told me that a couple of years ago, I probably nearly flipped the lid. You know, when you really break it down, the engine isn't all that complicated. Um, it, when you break it down into these small little chunks and you limit the number of options, uh, as my senior man says, tools in the toolbox might be one of the dumbest things because, you know, we know that those multi-tools don't always do a great job. So let's pick the one that works. We'll have options for what, you know, is thrown at us. But so when to, to wrap it all up in what you asked, those are the things that I think are important for a, an engine firefighter or an engine company officer to look at. Make the make the job um, clear but not simple. Yeah. 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 That's uh you said that I think, something like that. Yeah. Um I, I honestly man, it's like I like uh like Barry said, like I haven't I don't have a ton of engine experience. I'm on a squad now and uh I like beyond hose line operations, like that's that's my thing, but like hearing you talk about engine company operations in that way is really like I like it, man. It's it's like legit. Um Thanks. And then uh and like when do you so as um say you're like a first two pump? You want to talk a little bit about so you have like obviously you're making your decision on your diameter, your stretch, and and getting to the fire. Um, what about when you pull up and you have to make a decision on am I doing fire attack or you guys do like rescue mode, right? Is that a, that's like one of the things you guys do up there? You want to talk about like the differences between um between like 
I don't know what you call it, tra- traditional, like going in for fire attack versus going in for rescue mode and how you make that decision and what the difference is, is it in your company? Sure. Um, so we have an unwritten term called rescue mode in Manchester. And for those that have listened to the audio on Dutton Street, Captain Garuso talks about going into rescue mode. Um, I can tell you that I haven't been in a situation where I've had to make that decision in the past. And right now, running out of headquarters with the truck company and the heavy rescue, and the heavy rescue's job in Manchester is search and rescue. Um, I don't know how much I would have to make that decision, but I will say this. I do believe that um, getting water on the fire quickly um, and effectively will make conditions better for the folks that are inside. Um, I think we, I think you see that borne out on Dutton Street um, when Bobby Bikecki stretches that line off the back step and he gets water in that window and you see how quickly that darkens down. And there's no doubt in my mind that that um, bought a lot of time for those crews on the inside. It bought a lot of time for Captain DeRusso uh, and the guys from the truck company and the rescue company that were upstairs. You know, obviously, if you've got someone hanging out a window and uh, there's heavy volume of fire, I'm going to throw that ladder. You know, I'm hoping that the engine companies have had those drills and those talks ahead of time about how that's going to play out. Because you're hoping even in a three-man engine company that maybe your plate guy grabs the ladder and throws that up to try to make the grab. And the boss, in conjunction with the chauffeur, stretch the line to try to put water, you know, um, in and around them. Maybe it's an adjacent window or something on the first floor, something that protects them to get out. But again, I haven't had to make that decision, but I think those are conversations that company officers have to have with their folks and drill on that possibility. Yeah. And I, I, I don't want to, uh, obviously like tell too much of, um, Captain DeSrusso's story, but, um, hit that whole situation was kind of born out of a, a series of events where, the rescue and the ladder weren't in their assignments and, uh, and they were first due by themselves for a little bit longer than what would be typical. But, um, like you said, like still having the conversation, like if, if the boss, you know, it's always a possibility, you never know, but if it, if it happens, like, what are we going to do? Anything else you want to talk about, like specific to engine company operations, man? Like that's, uh, like, like you, yeah. you like you said, you got you got way more you got way more uh knowledge on the situation than than I do and uh and so, anything you want to talk about we can go. I yeah. know we have some photos that we can go over yeah. um in a little bit as well but Dave I, d- I did have a question for you as far as sure. um your engine company like kind of build out if you will. Um so you're saying pulling from the, you know obviously you have you have your different options you have pre-connect pulling from the back step or you have your your large diameter you know 500 or 600 gallons and above. Um, when you guys pull from the back step, what do you guys have? So we, I don't know if you're familiar, we have what we call the horseshoe. Do you guys have, have, have something familiar or similar to that? So our horseshoe is essentially typically 400 feet of two and a half into either a reducer or a play pipe with a hundred feet of inch and three quarter. Do you guys run something similar to that? So my engine company does, I would say probably not every engine company in the city does. We have a dead bed of 600 feet of two and a half. Yep. And next to it, we have a 200, I'm sorry, a 100 foot bundle of two inch hose um, with an inch and a 16th nozzle. So it's going to, okay. it's going to be a 240 gallons per minute. And that's yeah. going to be for a stretch that's longer than 300 feet. We do have a 300 foot pre-connected line off the back as well as a 200 foot pre-connected line off the back. So that okay. bundle actually serves a lot of different purposes. Um, it serves a purpose for um, having that longer stretch, something beyond 300 feet. 
it serves the purpose of, okay, we pull the initial 300 foot hand line going back to what's the option to now have that backup or second line at least be the same length. Well, they can pull the 200 foot that's back there and now add the bundle onto it. We have the yeah. option where if we want to go up, uh, we have to do some kind of vertical stretch because of the size of the building and the length of the stretch. We can just take that bundle by itself. We can go up to whatever the floor is, go to a window, go to a doorway, and we can drop the coupling down. So we have that bundle for a lot of different reasons. But for those longer stretches, um, we're going to pull the two and a half inch. We're going to spin the nozzle tip off. We're going to put the um, bundle on there. And then we have really nice fire by trade straps. We're going to use that fire by trade strap to secure the bale that is now acting as a gate valve so it doesn't get closed on the uh, nozzle team. Yeah, we've had a lot of variations. Like guys have tried different ways. So my, well, yeah, I mean, I guess my, my, I was on engine three and then I went to engine one. You see a little bit of different variation that, you know, like some guys are all about the play pipe because you have a little bit more versatility. You can break it down. Um, but there's obviously a concern like, hey, someone's going to kick the bail. So they tried like different ways of like those little grippy things that you can like hold onto it, little bungees or whatever. Um, and then my last company, we ended up using a reducer. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to see. This. Are we are we all reducers now? I'm not sure. And that's so Dave to like to give you the situational awareness. That's where like yeah. captains really have um, the kind of the um, tactical latitude, I guess, for lack of a better term, to make the decision. Some use play pipes, some some use reducers. Um, I know uh, Matt Davison, for example, he went from. I mean, they're still using the horseshoe, but he went from the 400 feet to two and a half and 100 feet in the horseshoe itself to 50 feet in the horseshoe for a little bit more maneuverability. So that's where like these captains that they have a little bit of, of, of latitude um, in how they kind of build their deployment packages. Well, I but think I as long as, oh, sorry, God. no, I was just curious if, you know, how you guys, how you guys had your setup. I think as long as folks are getting those gated wise out of those stretches, um, you know, going to the bell reducer or spinning off the nozzle tip are good options. I think too, um, firefighters don't realize that with new hose technology and with hose creep that that old rule of thumb of only going uh 300 feet before you have to fill it out with a larger diameter is kind of gone by the wayside so a lot of times with inch and three quarter hose you can go five six seven hundred feet depending on your target flow and its internal diameter and never have to worry about filling it out if that's an op you know if that's uh, something yeah. that you're worried about yeah wow interesting yeah yeah i did not um, know that so to go back to your other question, as far as wrapping up on uh, First Due Engine, I think it's so imperative that First Due Company officers are prepared to um, read the smoke and read the doors and have an idea of understanding where that fire really is located inside the building, um, especially if there's no fire coming out of it. So um, that's something that you know we talk a lot about on my engine company with my guys i want them to be sizing that up in conjunction with me because we're all better as a whole than we are as one so um i think that that's really uh that's probably it when uh when we talk about first two engine ops break down into a nice system give your folks options but not too many options and then tie them into specific um specific conditions where they would employ whatever it is that you're working on so that way they're ready to go to work interesting um, and you actually sent uh, you sent a photo. Um, can you see that? Yeah, I can see that. 
Yeah, so you're talking about like reading the smoke as like a as like a first do engine. So you want to talk about like you said that you wanted it to like this photo was something you wanted to kind of go over. Um, so so uh, what were your thoughts on this that you your talking points? Yeah, so um, this was good. This was a fire we had uh, the Friday before Memorial Day on Pearl Street, and it was a situation that I hadn't um, run into before. Uh, we were the second due engine. Uh, it's a duplex. I can tell you as a company officer, I missed that. Um, I didn't even pick up on the fact that when we walked up there that it was. So um, I, I think I learned a lot from this fire because conditions um, showed me things uh, to lead me to move one direction. And um, then there were conditions that changed that I had never seen before. So when we showed up, the highest, tallest column of smoke was um, in that A, B, so Alpha Bravo corner. And we had reports of possibly people trapped up there. So the first due engine, engine 10, forced that uh, door on the left and they went up and conditions were clear. I followed them up there. So um, tying back into engine company operations, I think that the second due engine officer has the hardest job in the fire service on the fire ground um, because there's a lot of decisions to have to make. In most fire departments, you're getting the first due engine water. So you have to decide where that water is coming from. Am I going to forward lay, reverse lay, split lay, booster backup? And once I get that all squared away, now when I walk up to the building, I have to check in. Is that first line moving? If the first line isn't moving, I need to help get that line in operation. Because the last thing I want to do is pull another line and climb over top of them, right? So if it means it's a harder stretch or they've got something inside and I've got to put four or five people on the line, that's what we have to do before we even consider a second or a backup line. So on this fire, I walked up, I talked to the company officer on the second floor, it was clear. Um, I said, hey, I said, are you good? He said, yep. So I went back outside with my plate man and we deployed a second line off the back step of the first two engine. And um, we got it up to uh, sort of the stairs that you see there. And one other engine company tip here, if you're working in New England and you have these three deckers in New England, uh, New Englanders, two and a half story frames, and you're running Minuteman loads, have your, and you have to go upstairs dry, have your folks dump that top 50 feet off your shoulder and hold that second 50 feet close to you as you get up top. If you remember those front hallways are tight and they're long and they're narrow and it's hard to deploy the hose. And when you look at the length of these buildings and the size, very rarely do you need any more than 50 feet of hose. So any more that you bring up there just really hampers your operation. So I talked to my nozzle man. I said, hey man, drop just a little bit of that hose. We'll be good to go. So he had it on his shoulder and we got up to that landing where you see someone with a flashlight. And this picture is a little later on into the incident, but um, you'll get the point. And as we were starting to mask up, um, I forgot to turn my bottle on, right? So we, we all, we, we, you were talking about all those things that, that go down, uh, you know, it's never just one thing. So anyway, so I'm like, I got my, my regulator plugged in and, and whatnot. And I got to pull it out real quick so I could turn my bottle on. And when I do, the smoke banked all the way down to the floor and I couldn't understand what was happening. I was saying, man, I said, what's going on here? I said, the fire is definitely up on the top floor. I was in this building, conditions were good. Why is it blowing back down on me? So um, just about as that happened, uh, my junior man who was who's my, my fourth guy, my fourth guy helps the driver get water to the first due engine and then comes up and finds me. So he comes up and he taps me on the shoulder. He says, Dave, he goes, I can see the fire in the window on the other side out here. He's like, the fire's on the other side. I was like, all right. So I called my nozzleman, bring the hose back down. We reposition. And as we're doing it, the rescue company came down and they said, hey, the fire's on the second floor. So I went ahead of the line and it was rocking pretty good in that second floor hallway. So 
we get the line in operation and um, get the fire knocked down. Try to get some hydraulic vent going, but uh, the front window is uh, in this little closet area that's all kind of hoarded up. And so we have some str- some trouble. At this point, the rescue company says, hey, uh, our bells are going off. Um, we're going to get out. So me and my nozzleman go up to the, the third floor, the, the half story. And um, as I turn the corner, it's, it's got pretty high heat up there. I don't see any visible fire, but there's a huge uh, hole in the floor. So right call command advise the companies that we have a huge floor. And so anyway, we, we flow some water up top and um, try to find a window to hydraulically ventilate and uh, bells go off and we go outside. So I was talking to the chief outside. He says, man, he was, you should have seen the amount of smoke that was coming down and banked down into the street. So here's the point of all this. We're so used to flow path and we're so used to, you know, having a unilateral flow path maybe where it's coming in the front door and it goes up to these upper floors. Well, what had happened here was that everything was super uh, buttoned up. And what I'm starting to see in our city, which and talking to other folks in New England, is that these buildings, this building that you see in the picture was built in 1898, but it's been rehab. It's got, you know, replacement windows. It has double sheetrock. It has new insulation. No windows ever failed here. So what had happened was the fire basically snuffed itself out and burned so hot um, up in that sort of uh, half story in the Alpha Delta corner. Um, And then when it finally like dropped down and the rescue company opened the door, it introduced that fresh air, it went up top, it got the fire um, rolling again. There's a common knee wall that connected the two uh, duplex or the two occupancies it came back across and because it had nowhere else to go because no other windows had been popped and nothing had been cut in the roof, it came back down. So I had never yeah. seen like an inverted flow path before. It all made sense. I thought maybe a smoke explosion, but I, I guess the whole point of this is, is um, you know, be ready for that unidirectional flow, or I'm sorry, that inverted flow path. You know, uh, it happens, especially here in these older buildings. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at this photo and I, I, if you hadn't labeled it, I obviously wouldn't have picked up on it. Um, but like, you can really see that that door on the right is perfectly clear and the yeah. door on the left is, is pushing smoke out of it. Um, that's a, that's pretty, uh, pretty drastic example. It's pretty wild. Yeah. Very cool. So yeah, that so, was, uh, that was good. As, as always, right. You're always hoping that you're picking up something at these fires and um yeah not going back and going oh that was weird you know it's my guys probably get annoyed at me for doing it and get tired of hearing me talking about it but i like to come back and 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 dwell on it for hours and days i mean that's where that's where you extrapolate the information if you don't if you don't that was weird you should you should put a little more thought into like why was you know why was that weird like what yeah. You know, what, what were those conditions and, you know, will I see them again or like, how would I see yeah. them again or whatever the case is? Um, sure. Yeah, man, that's great. And, um, and so you've, uh, you've gotten in, uh, you've gotten into, uh, working with some companies, doing some demos and really big into, uh, into dealing with hose and talking about hose. You have, uh, you have some photos here. Um, that you had sent me. Do you want to uh, do you want to talk about some of these and what uh, what you were hoping to share from them? Yeah. yeah. When did you start working for Mercedes? Like, how did how did that come about? Yeah. So I'll try to keep it on the the short the short version here. So um, 
after Beacon Street in 2014, where um, Michael Kennedy and Ed Walsh died in the line of duty, the NFPA sent out a request for folks um, to join the Technical Committee on Firehose, NFPA 1961. And uh, I guess I've always been fortunate enough to have people um, that have been around me that have seen things in me maybe that I didn't see in myself and have given me that push. And I think in the fire service and, and probably life in general, it's good to have those folks. Um, and I had a lot of encouragement. People said, you should apply to be on this committee. You love engine work. You love everything about fire hose. You do the stuff here um, in the city. And I was teaching at this point at the New Hampshire Fire Academy, you know, in the engine company operation stuff and the pump operations. I'm like, all right. I said, but they're not going to take some podunk kid from New Hampshire. You know, what do I have to offer? Well, lo and behold, in 2015, um, I was seated on the committee. And it's one of the coolest and best experiences I've ever had. I've uh, gotten to travel wow. to different places throughout the country and help develop some testing standards that um, are in play now that help us as end users better understand our fire hose. So, um, you know, from like 2014 through, I don't know, I guess it would have been 2020 or so, I was doing that and I loved everything about it. And uh, so how did I get to working with Mercedes? I was doing some stuff at the fire academy and um, there was a local distributor that asked me to do demos for them. And I didn't love the products that they were selling and it wasn't something that I necessarily wanted to use. So um, I kind of pitched the idea, well, how about I go out and talk to the fire departments and consult with them and say, hey, let's look at your attack packages. Let's see what you're looking to accomplish. We'll try to get your target flows. and you know, all the different components that are important to you, maybe packability, durability, things like that. And I said, then if you want to come in and talk to them about the product that you sell, I'm more than happy to do that. I said, but I don't really want to do like a sales kind of thing. So um, after that call, I called my friend that worked at Mercedes that I really value his opinion, Jamie Emblem. And Jamie and I had formed a relationship years earlier because we used Mercedes in Manchester and I had some questions. So we just kind of became friends and I sort of relied on him as a, a valued uh, confidant or someone that I could ask advice to. And I said, hey, I said, I don't really want to burn any bridges and I don't want to, you know, I've got all these great things and all these people I'm connected to. I don't want to ruin that. What do you think? He said, no, he said, guys know who you are and you're a pretty straight shooter. So go ahead and do it. So um, I never heard anything back really after I pitched that idea. And the next day, Jamie called me and said, hey, do you want to come do it with us? And you can do it nationwide. So I said, all right, that sounds pretty wow. good because, you know, I believed in the product. And the one thing I really like about the gig that I have is um, the title is consultant and special projects. So um, I don't work on commission. I don't do sales. Um, I don't um, have a quota or anything like that. So essentially Mercedes will field um, questions, whether it's some troubleshooting with some customers that might have the product or someone that wants to put together an attack package. And I'll talk to them on the phone. And if it seems like, you know, they need someone out there, then then I go. And um, it's basically an education role. And that's what I really like about it. And it's yeah. afforded me the opportunity to go to some conferences that I wouldn't have before, be involved in some R&D and some new products. And, and again, mainly just educate. And I like that there's no carrot, you know, dangling at the end of the stick where, oh man, you know what, if I don't get a sale out of this, then I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to not get paid. And I, I guess I would say this too, that kudos to them for finding, I'm not the only one, Mike Scherr from Portland, Maine and Kevin Fluger from down on Live Oak do the same thing. And I just think it's a great model. You have firefighters that go in, you talk about fireman things, and then 
we try some stuff out and if it works for you, great. And if not, hopefully you got some education out of it and you found something along the way that helps you uh, protect your citizens better. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's a, that sounds like a, a pretty, pretty good company to like, like you said, like take that idea and, and not put a quote on you and let you actually yeah. be more of an educator than a salesman. I think that's pretty, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, it, it builds trust too. I mean, the departments will remember that. Sure. I think so. I think you're right. Um, so these photos, uh, tell me which ones you want me to, to pop up oh. here. So I have, uh, let's see, I have. Go with um, not the two and a half story frame. Yeah, that one's good. That right, one cool. and maybe the one where uh, you can see the tower and the hose coming. This one right here? Yeah. I don't know I if you can I... split screen them or how that works, but either one is fine. Yeah, perfect. Oh, that's great. Oh, I like wow. it. Well, well, our tech guy. I, I know I had to reach out to him recently because I want to try to repost something on Instagram. So he was the first one I, <laughs> He's I turned the guy. to. <laughs> um, so uh, going back now to like engine company work, uh, one of the things, so one of the cool opportunities that I had because of Mercedes was to be in Live Oak at the Dagon conference. And uh, Mercedes was a lead sponsor for this conference. And Kevin Fluger, who, like I said, I work with, um, at Mercedes was, was running this. And, uh, so he said, Hey man, he goes, we're doing some engine company tracks. And I got this other kid. I'd love for you to work with me, Matt Bryan out of uh, Texas as well. And he said, um, you know, I want to do this thing on like extended and vertical stretches. So I said, all right, we'll do that. Cause we do a lot of rope stretching in the city of Manchester. So as we started looking at it and whatnot, I think, um, uh, firefighters need to start considering these larger, um, I'll call them mid-rises that are coming into every community. It's no longer just surrounding, you know, large cities. It's getting into suburbs and stuff. So you're seeing these uh, four, five, six-story um, type five over type one buildings. And uh, they're long hallways. They're, um, they're set back. They've got courtyards. So going back to you are talking about like the horseshoe bundles and those extended lays, I think we as firefighters need to start preparing because for these stretches. So what I always say folks might consider in the past as being alternative stretches are going to be their everyday stretch or something that they're going to have to consider, especially with um, most cities expanding and allowing these buildings without expanding any staffing to help get those hand lines into operation. So yeah. Um, Going back to sort of the rules of three, I think fire to firefighters should look at their own departments and their own buildings and pick three options for going vertical, both on the inside and on the outside. And that was the drill that we were running here. So you can see there's different bundles and hose rolls and, and webbing and rope. So um, there's eight different ways that you can um, stretch or stretch hose vertically. Uh, I always say you can rope stretch it. You can drop the coupling. There's a picture, if you can possibly bring it up, there's a guy with a hose roll that's dropping it um, off the tower. That hose roll is rolled backwards. So um, when it drops down to the ground, the female coupling will be there to connect on to whatever comes off of the rig. You can have up over a ladder, you can do a flying standpipe, you can do a well stretch, and you can do, oh boy, I'm gonna miss one. Uh, I had it and I missed it. Anyway. There's eight of them and breaking that down. The biggest thing to consider though, when you're looking at these vertical stretches is that what are the access points to get to it? So um, a lot of folks say, yeah, our, our way that we're gonna do that is we're bring our hose bundle up, we're gonna drop a coupling down and we're gonna go in. And then when you look at the windows, they don't open. 
So as soon as you have to break one of those windows, we need to think about what those windows are made out of. And then once that large opening is there, um, what are we, um, what are we dropping glass onto when we break it? And then we're also changing the flow path and uh, of the building as well. And once we do that, we can't cover it back up. So if you look at it, most um, commercial buildings that are in that mid rise, they don't open. Most residential, at least what I've seen, uh, will open up. And then the other part to that is, okay, so now say that they do open and I can make the stretch, how easy is it for me to get into? Does your department have Knox keys? Um, you know, how secure are those office doors or those apartment doors? How long is it going to take you to force entry into it? So although in your mind, it may seem like a rope stretch or just dropping a coupling is fast and easy, there are a lot more um, things that you need to consider as you um, go through that thought process. Um, and you would, you would actually put, um, a post up, uh, I don't know if that was the one you, I think it might be the one that you, uh, you, oh no, you, 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 uh, you asked me about reposting something, but you posted, um, something about securing these lines when you take them up and, and how important that is as well. Right. Yeah, it's super important. So, um, when you go to secure it, um, in that picture there, you can see that we, um, secured that hose with a piece of webbing on the supply side of the couplings. When you do that, as opposed to around the hose, it allows for a smoother, more round transition over top of whatever it is that you're coming into. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating for the fact that if you only need 60 feet of hose inside that you pull the additional 40 feet up and uh, try to store that in where you're at. Um, I think firefighters need to remember too that having too much hose or storing too much hose can be just as detrimental as not having enough hose. If we overstack right. it, um, it'll run yeah. the wall, it'll fall over, I'm going to get kinks, right? So long story short here, if you can get it around that coupling, you're going to get a nicer transition. In our built environment here and, and where you work, where we're probably going to stretch these lines up the outside, we may be inhibiting other means of in egress and ingress in those stairwells if we try to wrap around one of those banisters. So my crew and I were talking one day and we said, well, how can we go about trying to secure this hose? Because we know that with only having 50 or less feet of hose needed for those apartments and it being a smaller diameter hose, once we charge it, gravity is going to pull it back outside. We are going to want to secure it somehow, but we don't want to impede that um, front interior public hallway. So we came up with that way with the uh, Halligan sticking it in the wall and being able just to wrap the webbing around the coupling and then around the top of the pick and the ads of the Halligan and it stays secure. Because obviously the weight on the hose is pulling back outside and it's pulling the Halligan back into the wall. That's awesome. That's super smart. Yeah. And it, it's, one, it's one of those things like, like you have to you have to know that and you have to practice it and be proficient at it so that you can actually make it work when the time comes um that's awesome um well we're kind of we're kind of getting to to around uh around an hour but i do really want to talk about um this uh photo <laughs> here because this was a this was a catastrophic handline failure uh as you said and um i think it'd be this might be a good kind of uh lesson or, or talking point to kind of to to kind of wrap the show up and is like you can you can do all of this right you can have your your rules of three have your recognition prime decision making have your game plan know what you're doing and still something can go wrong 
and you have to be able to overcome that. So you want to talk a little bit about about uh, about what happened um, here? Yeah, for sure. Um, so to your point, right? Uh, you can do everything right in this job, and, and stuff can still go go belly up, and that's just the way that it is. So um, we try to go out and drill as much as we can, and sometimes you, right, you can't drill for every possibility. But what you're really hoping for is that maybe you just spark something in someone's head that you know uh, prompts just thinking and problem solving in general. If that makes sense, right? Um, whatever it is you're trying to solve on that drill, it may not be related to the emergency that you have, but because you've had to work through a decision-making process and evaluation, you're going to be better for it. So um, fortunately, from what I see and hear, catastrophic line failures are not all that prevalent in the American Fire Service. Obviously, they happen. So um, we caught a job. It was uh, maybe four in the afternoon. Uh, top floor fire in a two and a half story wood frame. I had a probie on the back step uh, that had, he was in that class that you were in up in uh, Laconia, Barry. Oh, really? So, uh, yeah. Um, and he had just uh, graduated recruit school. So that was an interesting caveat. Um, yeah. I had my junior man in the other spot in the back and uh, he's, he's top shelf. So uh, and my senior man was driving. Uh, he's got 23 or 24 years on the job. He, he's not my seated chauffeur but he drives for me most of the time and uh, he's, he's super on top of things. So um, right. Not only is it the training part that, that helps out with all this stuff, but sometimes just by pure luck that you have the right players in the right positions uh, that yeah. day. And we certainly did. So we had a really good stretch. Um, we had a lot of smoke being pushed out of that Bravo Charlie corner. Um, you could tell it was already into the knee walls at that point, but the fire hadn't shown itself. So I told the kid to to grab that minute and two hundred foot minute man off the back step, and we were going to go in through the front door. So I went ahead of the line. Uh, great visibility all the way up to the top floor. When I got to the top floor, as you know, in most of these two and a half story New Englanders, there's no landing there. So basically, you get to the top of the stairs, and there's a small little maybe like three by three area where the door opens up, and then you walk into the apartment. And that's what we had. Someone left the apartment door open. So the smoke was banked all the way down to the floor. Um, I tried to reach around to close the door and uh, took a feed, and that wasn't going to happen. So uh, Chris Bouchard, who was the probie, and uh, Sam Torgen, who was the backup guy, did a phenomenal job getting that line upstairs, had it flaked out. So I told them, hey, we're going to charge. We'll bring the line upstairs, get the nozzle and that coupling up top before you charge it. They did that. Um, had a real top-notch guy who was working a swap of the truck out of Newberry that day. Uh, he said, Hey, I'm going to go ahead of the line. I'm going to help you find the fire and I'm going to search. Perfect. Right. Everything's like going like clockwork. So things are good. Um, I get the probie inside the door, um, having a, the tick kind of whited out a little bit. It wasn't overly hot, but, um, couldn't quite find it. So we stopped, we listen. Yup. can hear where the crackling is kind of see a glow. Hey, okay. We're going to go this way. Tell them to open up from a distance. Things are good. Adam must've been standing up, uh, searching because he took a face full of water, came back and said, you just knocked me over. He goes, but the fire's this way. I said, all right, cool, man, we're coming. So we probably got within maybe five, six, eight feet of the fire compartment. We can see where the fire is, tell the kid to open the line up, and he starts to apply water. And as he does, he goes, Lou, he goes, I lost water. And at the same time, uh, my chauffeur jumped on the radio and said, hey, man, you got a burst line. I said, all right. So transmitted the urgent, told the chief that um, – we were back in the line out that we had a burst length and uh, you know, we were going to back out to the stairwell. 
So they started to back the line out. I went ahead of the line. I found Adam. I wanted him to know that he didn't have any protection um, and that we were backing the line out. So I went and found him. And uh, he's like, no, the fire's right here. I go, I know, but I lost the, I lost the line, man. I said, we got to back out. He's like, ah, oh, all right. So the truck captain at that point came in. I met with him. And uh, this is where things were good. So we do a really good job of drilling. And we run this drill at the firehouse where we um, will – build out an inch and three quarter line. We'll put a hundred feet out and we put a gated Y. We extend the rest of that hose off of the gated Y and we start flowing water. We open up the open port, which now simulates a large hole. And because we don't run pressure governors and we have old school relief valves, the pressure on the gauge drops significantly. So now when the, when the nozzleman or the officer says, hey man, I lost pressure and water at the line, the chauffeur can look at the pump panel and go, oh, man, I know this is supposed to be flowing at 110, but it's only flowing at 90. Hey, Lou, you got a burst line versus if it was a kink, the pressure would be at least where it should be, but really it should be higher. So we went through all these drills to identify engine company emergencies and why we would lose water. But what I failed to do as a company officer was to prepare my guys for where do you get the hose from if something should fail? So Stevie uh, thought fast on his feet and um, he jumped up on top and he grabbed that bundle that we talked about earlier, took the oh, straps I... off, broke the line. The chauffeur from the second new engine company came up and between the two of them, they replaced the, the burst length. The hose came apart from the coupling and luckily it was at the discharge off the back step. Uh, we talk about the importance of that second line or that backup line and getting an operation. Uh, Greg Bulldog was there on overtime at engine seven. And uh, he had a backup line already in that stairwell as we were coming out. So I went back down to, um, I thought we were going to stretch another line. And I didn't realize it, but I went past both my nozzlemen and my backup. I didn't hear them yell for me. So I got down to the front door and I couldn't find them. So <laughs> I went back up to the second floor and I didn't see them there. And I went back up to the third floor and they were already operating inside the fire uh, apartment again. So in the time it took me to go forward and find Adam, go down three flights of stairs, the line was already placed back in service. So I think it was maybe a total of 30 or 45 seconds. And Stevie knocked it out of the park that day, man. Um, yeah, thought fast on his feet and, 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 uh, and did what he had to do. So, um, you know, we came back to the firehouse and we talked about it. We said, all right, well, we did a lot of really good things here and we've drilled a lot. Um, so then, you know, we added, well, where do you get hose from? And uh, there's, there's different options. There's even more than just that bundle at this point now. So I think it's important, right? Um, it's good to get out and do all the things we're going to do, but it's super important on the engine company side to, to number one, be prepared when you do have the failure. And I think the most important part from an engine company perspective is if your fire department allows folks to search off of the hand line and ahead of the nozzle, you really have to pay attention as to who's out in front of you because should you lose that, you are their protection. And um, you want right. to make sure that you can communicate that to them because they might not hear it over the radio. Right. Yeah. Man, that's, let me that's, talk about awesome. that. that's, that's one of those things that you obviously don't want that to happen ever, but you can have, if it can happen and you can have that experience you had and like have a really good learning experience where the outcome wasn't overly affected. That's like, that's a that's a pretty pretty yeah. uh, pretty proud moment, I imagine, for an officer with his crew. You know, 
Oh, for yeah. sure. My guys are, uh, my guys hit it out of the park, man. I always say it all the time. They, uh, they make me look good for sure. They make the department look good. Yeah. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Um, uh, so <clears throat> I think that kind of like wraps us up today. Um, we can obviously have you back for more time. I mean, you got, you got a lot, you got a lot in, uh, in between yeah. those years, man. And, and, uh, I love listening to it. I think that for me, like your passion for what you do is very obvious and, uh, it's, uh, it's easy to yeah. listen to you talk about it. Yeah. So it's um, I, I appreciate, uh, appreciate you coming it. on. Yeah. Um, oh, my pleasure, so, man. To, can we can we uh, put you on the spot a little bit? Like to ask if you uh, if you have like one piece of advice or one thing that you'd like to 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 impart on people like on the way out. Oh man, jeez, I wasn't prepared for this one. <laughs> one piece of advice to impart on people. Yeah, man, uh, I would say embrace the target. Um, don't get sucked into, uh, guys around you telling you that you don't need to be out doing stuff that training's stupid. Um, I got into that rut, uh, for a little while in my career, probably years, maybe like three through five. Um, I think it's easy to get on and you have all this passion and you're gun ho. And then at the end of the day, you get a little bit of experience and then you think you quite maybe have enough and you think you're better than you are and you have in we're all human. We want to assimilate with the people that we're with. So you may not be comfortable saying, no, you know what? I'm going to go out and drill on my own. I don't really care what you have to say um, because you want to fit in with the guys that you're working with. I get it. Um, So I would say if you're strong enough and you can get beyond that, just keep doing what's right. I guess that's it. Uh, I love the main beer company and I love their slogan. It just says, do what's right. And um, if what's right is going out there and, and drilling, then embrace the target and let them, you know, throw arrows at your back or whatever the case may be. But uh, yeah. don't don't look back on your career and, and wish that you had spent more time doing those things. Just go out and do them. And I do yeah. believe, though, the fire service is getting much better. And I think that there's less of those people telling folks to sit down and shut up. I think there's more encouragers. So, yeah, yeah. I guess that's what I would say. I love yeah. it, man. And um, oh, I just you. want to give a shout out to... Uh, to national fire radio because uh we didn't talk about that you know but i know that in your interview with with jeremy you did you went through that that kind of like having your good years going through your rut and then and then coming out of that so uh another part of dave's story is out there so if you uh if you want to hear it man we're, we're all about supporting each other here um national fire radio has that out um yeah. and then last thing before we go if you want to get in touch with you talk to you see what you have to say where can they find you yeah, um, probably Instagram's the easiest way. Um, uh, the hose nerd. Pretty so, easy uh, to remember. Yeah, most people say that I just am a nerd, which I don't disagree with. But that's probably the best way. I'm getting better at looking at that request sections if it's someone that I'm not friends with or whatever. To, but um, yeah. you know, that's probably the easiest way, uh, and we can chat. And then once we do that, then I'm more than happy to give anybody my number. You know, the I guess I'll wrap up with this. We've all gotten to places because everyone's done so much for us. So I try never to lose sight of that. So if someone has a question, I'm more than happy to share with whatever I have. I'm on the back nine. So get the information okay. out and uh, keep moving and keeping the job moving forward. Yeah. Well, I, I, do, I do have something to, to add to, to, okay. toward, to the end of this. Because uh, I know you're, you're as humble as they come. Um, but to our, our New Hampshire and Massachusetts listeners, um, so I took a fire dynamics, um, for structural firefighting class with Dave, um, and some of his colleagues. And I would implore anyone that listens to the show regularly that's passionate about the fire service that's from New England. 
if you have the opportunity to take this course, it's one of the, I feel like I've been to a fair amount of courses. You always can go to more. It was, Dave, I'm telling you, that's one of the best courses I've ever been to in a long time. You guys should be incredibly proud of the program you guys have put together. I walked away from that course in the course of what, like eight hours reinvigorated uh, and ready to get back out there. So you guys should be incredibly proud of that program. Um, and to anyone that listens, if you have the opportunity to take that class, it's it's one of the best classes I've ever taken. So, oh, I appreciate that. We're doing two more coming up in Nashua, September 5th and 6th. The 5th is... Uh, Maybe the sixth is sold out, but I say sold out. It's free. Also, yeah. it's free. Jump on exactly. it. <laughs> I think the fifth might still have some openings. So if you're interested, yeah. but I appreciate that, Barry. You know, we're glad yeah. that's that people are taking something away. At the end of the day, that's really what it's all about. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, all right, guys. Well, thanks for tuning in. Uh Dave Quick, the hose nerd. We appreciate you uh you being here with us and taking the time and uh look forward to to having more conversations, uh, whether on the air or off or, uh, in person, man, uh, yeah. pretty, pretty stoked and, uh, pretty, pretty humbled to, to, that you came on and, and talked to us at what time? Yeah. Nine 30 at night. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Let's chat again for sure, man. This is great. No, man. As a resident right, of Manchester, uh, I'm super proud of you guys. You guys are, couldn't, couldn't have it any better. So thank you. It. Awesome. All right, guys. uh, Until uh, next week, make sure you like, subscribe, and uh, we will see you at the next one.